Blog Talk Radio. This is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you're listening via the Internet, you can type your questions in the comment box. You can also call and listen by dialing on your phone, 516-531-9540. And if you want to ask a question after you are connected, press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We are also available on about seven podcast platforms. And lastly, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Ida Jones. Jones is the author of four biographies, including Baltimore civil rights leader, Victorian Kill or Quill Adams, and The Power of the Ballot. She took preserving Adams' legacy a step further and did what was necessary to have Adams inducted into the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame. Our talk today, Mammoth's Revenge, is partially based uh, on film historian and author Donald Bogle's book, Tom's, Coons, Mulattoes, Mammies, and Bucks, an interpreter of history of blacks in American film, which was released back in 1973. In the book, Bogle describes a mammy figure as representative of all black women, overweight, middle-aged, and so dark and so thoroughly black that it's preposterous even to suggest that she is a sex object. Instead, she was desexed. Almost 50 years later, we see women who could fit that description to some degree not only gain power but use it, including, well, we'll talk about that soon. Welcome, Ida. <laughs> Welcome, Ida. Do you have any opening thoughts? Yes, thank you, Wayne, for having me. Yes, I wanted to use the idea of Mammy as a prism through which to view African-American womanhood in the 21st century. We know that there was a sisterhood of both Jezebel, Mammy, and Sapphire that were expanded and conflated upon throughout the 19th and 20th century. And so in the 21st century, we see black women rising up in various elements to destroy those myths that were superimposed upon a sub element of our population, and I want to discuss some of those persons and personalities today with you. Okay, well, let's go ahead. You know, uh, let's start off with Stacey Adams, if we can. She, she, she's usually the first person that comes to my mind as being this woman who's uh, not, I guess, a size 8 would be, the, would be the way to say it. She's not a size 8 or size 10. She doesn't have blonde hair, blonde streaks. She doesn't have a, yes, a pinched nose. Yes, she's not Yes, yeah, she's but not the, typical of what European or Western standards would call a beauty, correct? Oh, well, I think she's wonderful, though, in fact. But she's a former candidate for governor of Georgia, heading of the voting rights group Fair Fight that is helping Georgia become blue and tilted the U.S. Senator Democrat. And she's also an undergrad degree from Spelman and HBCU. So, yeah, she, isn't, she doesn't fit those stereotypes, but she's definitely owning her space. Would you say that? Very much so, and I think it's very interesting that women who are not African-American were also, if you're intelligent, were also desexed and placed into another kind of space. So the idea of a woman with a brain is threatening to the dominant status quo as is. When you add a black patina and you add dimensions to body types and you add any other adjectival descriptions, they become, quote, more threatening and menacing and therefore a larger target to be demeaned and dismissed. And I think that's one of the things that really scared people in general, I think even black men to some degree, um, to her 
going against all these white men in Georgia. And every time I see her, for instance, speak out against them, I just cheer because it's like, okay, she, she came out the kitchen and she's telling you what to do and you are offended. And, and, and it gets me when sometimes when these white guys, and it happens so often, they come out and attack black women generally. And I don't think they understand that people like me look at it as being an attack on my mother, my sister, <laughs> you. And I don't know if I'm being oversensitive, but it's like, don't you respect anything they say or do? That's a very good point. And I think because politics is a very vicious element of our society, even the late Kelly Miller said this, that people had said he was an anti-suffragist. He wasn't an anti-suffragist. What he understood about politics is that the gloves come off and people are very savage because with politics comes power. With power comes the dictates to circumscribe everyone else's life. So it becomes a very, very important place to be able to own like a Strom Thurmond for nearly 70 years and keep certain persons out. So now that we find black women in various states, attorney general offices, mayoral positions, running for governor, and these other kinds of positions, it's now going to move the needle from basically concentrating all of the wealth and access to a small few and dispersing that in a much more equitable fashion. And that's the threat, the disruption to power and the oligarchy and control. Yeah, I can see where the, the spreading of the wealth is probably the biggest threat, but the visual threat to me, is seeing someone like Stacy take on a, a white man who probably has some great, I'm going to say probably, has a great reference for uh, Confederate statues and um, uh, whatever that thing in Georgia, Stone Mountain, et cetera, you know, and then seeing this woman compete against him, I think that's a real threat. The other one, Letitia James up in New York, uh, Attorney General from New York, and she's examining how Trump valued his assets, such as trying to be listed among the wealthiest people in Ford, but then on the opposite end, displaying his assets, as assets to reduce his real estate taxes. And let me add, she had the law degree from Howard, another HBCU person. So, and of course, we all know this week she got, she got on Cuomo. But <laughs> I'm so sorry, sorry for him. You hate to see your heroes fall down, but still, you know, if he did, he did, and, and, and you know, she was on his case. But I wonder how Trump feels having a black woman attack him. And people could say, oh, 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 well, you know, now I'm being too sensitive because whatever reason. But look how many black women he had, he, he had around him. None, did he? I don't remember seeing any black women around Trump. He did. He had the uh, Omar, Omarosa. Who he oh, how long the was she there? Quickly. <laughs> she was there uh, from the apprentice days all the way up until the White House. And then eventually was put to the curb in a rather unceremonious fashion. I think she even penned kind of her memoirs to talk about kind of his pendulum-like swinging mood. But she didn't benefit from being in his circle. So there's, she didn't really lose, per se. So she well, got yeah, what so happens. He, so, Once you're of no use, you get put to the curb. So he had one black woman around him. That's compared nothing to what Obama or Biden or even Hillary Clinton had or has around them. So I know he must find Letitia James a threat, just her body just her body presence is probably a threat to him. Well, if you saw her public uh, press announcement on the Cuomo situation, it was stone-faced and very clear. She was not coming out of any emotional space. She was looking at the facts. And looking at the facts against the, the law, that's what the law decided. He, he abrogated the law. So at some point... It's not about a personal feeling. It's not a giggly, ticklish moment. It's the facts and the law. And that's the part that I love. Even the woman who won the wrestling, the Ghanaian-American woman who won the first gold medal in wrestling, 
was not given her due in the Washington Post or the New York Times being put on page 17 of the, the sports page on the very back pages. So black women are claiming these spaces, whether it's Osaka or Biles, in these other kinds of spaces and letting them letting the, the world know we have feelings and emotions and dimensions of personality that whether you choose to acknowledge, we will express regardless. And that's just in the tradition of our foremothers, the Mary McLeod Bethunes, Anna Julia Coopers, and Nanny Helen Burroughs. Did they, were they able to produce, you know, I've never seen pictures of either of them talk that I can recall, but were they, were they able to produce a stone face, and I would say, quote, like a man, unquote, as Letitia James did when she made her announcements? I think Biles ignoring the media and Osaka basically speaking through her people made it very clear. You're not going to bring me out as a spectacle to antagonize me. I've made my statement, and I'm walking away. That's as clear as it's going to get. So no, I, I, meant, I, 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 meant the early, I meant the earlier black women like um, Almost definitely. Mary McLeod Bethune. Definitely. Oh, yes, definitely. Mrs. Bethune, and actually there's a, a new a book coming out soon about her global endeavors. And she faced this intra-racial prejudice, as you discussed, in terms of her stature, because she was not fair-complected nor petite, although she was only 5'4 and about 160 pounds at her heaviest. But that was considered kind of rather stout. So she faced internal or intra-racial pressure from fair-complected black men and others who really wanted a Lena Horne-type person to swoon and fawn over. And once again, she was very articulate and very intelligent. That was also yet another menacing threat. So she was very clear to make sure that she could articulate herself and have audience and companionship with other persons around the world. So she was very clear on that. And uh, so wasn't uh, Nanny Helen Burroughs to some extent as well. Well, I'm, what I'm asking more in particular, have you seen any newsreels or pictures where, they, where she's – I've seen pictures of them being stone-faced, but how about when they're talking to me? And were, did they have to principle? Prince, prince around or prance around men to be accepted or were they like a stone face of Letitia James was the other day? If you read the writings of Mrs. Bethune, she mm. is very pointed in her comments. And the fact that she had a column in the Chicago Defender Weekly, she was always clear to express herself. So she did not have the moving footage that we have now or the audio footage that we have now because of the technology. But if you read her writings and you look at the organization she created and led, she was very clear in her understanding of her value and the essence of what her presence symbolizes to breed a Dorothy Height, a Patricia Roberts Harris, a Lorraine Williams. I mean, constellations of generations of women who she basically nurtured to great heights. Shirley Chisholm, Fannie Lou Hamer. I mean, so she's nurturing a wave and wave after wave of succeeding generations of women. So she did it by example, and she left her legacy that was published in Ebony Magazine that bequeathed certain kinds of intangible things about character and integrity that let them know regardless of what they say, whoever the they is, you belong to a God, and she was a very Christian person because she wanted to be a missionary, that there's a larger force at work here. And if they've called you to do a work, you will do the work regardless of the naysayers. So like Nehemiah of the Bible, stay on the wall and do the work you've been assigned to your hands. Okay, so I guess given that thought, I could agree or I could see her being as strong as uh, Letitia James, so Letitia James is standing on her shoulders. Um, I think the greatest thing is to do is to be a mentor for these other people, like you mentioned. I've seen them newsreels of them, and they were very strict and straight about who they were. But, you know, I think it's kind of interesting that even now we still have to speak of women having to be that way and that not being considered a feminine trait. 
Yeah, that's true because, once again, if you look at Western society, and this is based loosely on the same kind of Judeo-Christian principle, women are to kind of be the lesser, the weaker, the one that needs to be guided and kind of almost shepherded into certain things. So the ideal experience of womanhood would be to be a mother. That is the supreme purpose of a nurturer <laughs> in the Western world. Exactly. And so you were to be the mother and to maintain the domestic sphere and to raise the children, cultivating the future of humanity. The man was to be outside of the household to do all the other exploits on behalf of, quote, family and society. So the idea of women going into, quote, a male space, which was the public sphere, was considered to be somewhat asexual. Even if you look at the suffrage movement of the last, last year or the last century, the idea of women going into wanting the right to vote, there were campaigns that said they were mentally sick. Something was wrong with them. Why would they not want to be a mother? That's the supreme capture for women. So the idea that it wasn't just simply black women, it was also white women in general. That they yeah, that's, and that's one, something and was you know wrong. I, right, you know I like watching the old TV shows, and that's one thing I always find so interesting when I watch them. One of the things I find interesting when I watch the old TV shows, say, for instance, Andy Mayberry, where the lady's supposed to marry Andy, and the question is, not when they're going to get married or if they're going to get married, but if they get married, if she's going to still teach. <laughs> like she, like as if she can't teach and be a mother at the same time. You that know, actually was a law. It was called the marriage ban. And once a woman was married, she was basically relieved of her service as a teacher. I studied in Maryland with uh, the Victorine book, and there was no marriage ban in Maryland. So she could actually be married and maintain her classroom in the city of Baltimore. I don't know about the other counties. But there was uh -huh. a thing called a marriage ban, and women were definitely asked to be relieved of their duties because now their classroom was not their family. The husband and her natural children would be her family. So the idea of the feminized professions, teaching, librarianship, social work, and nursing, your charge was to become your care or your nurturing point. So the nurses to care for her patient, the social worker to care for their clients, the librarian to care for the patients. Patrons, excuse me. So the idea of these feminized professions is to kind of have a motherhood by adjacent motherhood. But once you're married, now your responsibility is to your natural children and to that household, domestic sphere. Yeah, and, and yeah, I can see that very clearly. And I'm going to move on now to Cori Bush because I think she, she, in many ways, she could also represent what we were speaking of earlier about interracial, intraracial issues and that uh, she defeated a 10-term incumbent, Lacey Clay, who had, quote, politically inherited, I know he may find that to be insulting, but he politically inherited his seat from his father, Bill Clay Sr., after his father served in the House for more than three decades. So Cori Bush comes along and defeats this legacy, and uh, the, the Clays are lighter, she's darker, but she's heavier, and she also attended Harris Toe State, another HBCU. She didn't finish there, but she went there. Um, as we all know, she just finished the whole idea of uh, making sure that people who were about to get evicted had more time. And they say they're not going to get evicted, but they have more time in which to solve their issues. So what do you think about Cori Bush? I think she's amazing. She joined uh, uh, AOC on the steps of, the, I believe, the Congress about this eviction ban, that they wanted to extend the eviction ban. Because she experienced, she said, I wasn't homeless, I was unhoused. She, so she refers to a period of her life when she was with her children and she was unhoused. And, and so I love she can that. relate and I, to... And I, I love that how she took that word, how she took a situation and, and defined it the way she chose to. In the tradition of her foremothers, that's what we do as black women. 
Uh-huh. And the, the rappers said they were trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, a diamond and nickel. Well, Mr. Uh-huh. King built an academic empire out of a dollar and 50 cents. So we've always right. had that capacity to be that creative. Yeah, and I think uh, she has been creative. One thing I do, one thing I didn't like about her when she first came out of the gate is that she um, felt that it was a need to bash Obama. And uh, I'm an Obama, Obama Mike, believe me. He's from Metro Gary, Chicago. That's, that starts it off. But the thing is, is that, uh, well, at least that's where he got his, uh, his, gro- his his best grooming. But nonetheless, the point is she spoke ill of him, and I thought that was not necessary to speak ill of people who uh, you're trying to stand on top of. But it seemed like she and many of her in her group have learned to at least learn to pick their battles, except for this one lady I see in Ohio. She lost her election uh, yesterday. And I find it amazing that she – thought it was sort of insulting that the big dogs would come in and run against her after she attacked them. <laughs> so it's one thing you'll see like Cori Bush did at least learn her lesson. I think so. And she had said uh, at the outset that when she wore a Brianna mask uh, during her inauguration or her swearing in, they go, oh, your name's Brianna too? So <laughs> what she hadn't realized that other congressmen, the level of uh, blindness or tone deafness in other spaces, she didn't realize that these people actually thought her mask was her name. And so <laughs> when you live in I think, we've all, space, I think we've all experienced it, especially when we've been in white settings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, I went to school in Iowa. That happens so much and so often. I'm like, okay, what's next? <laughs> but I think when you live on the edge as someone who was unhoused, a single mother with children, and dealing with real bread and butter issues, the kind of oblivious or just complete blindness that other communities have of you, it's almost like, are you on the same planet? Exactly. Do you even understand how other people are living? And this exactly. is America. We're not going to quote a, a developing country. I don't even call them third world. We're not in a developing We're right here in America. And just like Tashara Jones, the mayor of St. Louis, the first African-American mayor of St. Louis, she has the same kinds of questions. Do you, do you not see how people are living here? Are, are you kidding yeah. me? Speaking of Tashara, black women represent the most, I guess, relevant persons to be at the helm of any leadership in this country at this juncture because we've been so far on the periphery that we know what the center looks ideally should look like because we've been so far removed from it by de facto activists. Yeah, I think that's really put black women as being very unique. Um, I know one Shirley Chisholm, this is when I was working on the Hill one time as an intern, and um, we went to go visit her office, and that's the first time I've, I think the first time, I think it was there when she came to Iowa, but the main point is what she said is that um, she expressed the notion that being a woman was worse, well, was more of a hindrance than being black, and that even our white congressman who had a 30% black constituency was just as bad as the rest of the white ones. <laughs> and I was thinking, wow, that is so harsh. <laughs> But I've come yeah, to learn that, yeah. that that is so accurate, <laughs> you know. And so we were speaking about naming people, too, uh, Tashara Jones. I was going to hopefully that you would pronounce the name correctly because I can't pronounce it. But do you remember back maybe uh, six years ago or so, um, there was much of a discussion in the black community in particular about naming your child with ethnic-sounding names and how you could uh, – uh, Put a hurting on their future abilities to get a job in corporate America. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Yes, okay. I do. And I'm from the generation where there was tons of Ishas, 
Keisha's, my Isha, La Isha. So I had a generation of Isha's, uh, okay. those of us in the 70s. Um, and so some of those names do have ethnic meaning. But um, it was also, like you said, a stigma. Because once they saw Lakeisha Johnson, well, we know who that is. Yeah, and and so as a result, it would, it would mark you. Yeah, and there was kind of, uh, you know, uh, lots of studies on on how people would look at people's resumes and say, okay, well, we know that person's black, and they'll get a, a lesser score or wouldn't get an interview or be set aside. But I think it's amazing now when we see a number of these black women rise to power, how they do have these, quote, ethnic names, like Tashara Jones, as you mentioned, the first African-American woman mayor in St. Louis, and also a Hampton U graduate. But then it's also Keisha Lance Bottoms. You mentioned the word Keisha. I mean, now Keisha's the mayor of Atlanta. She ain't running around asking you to pronounce her name anymore. And so I think that's part of it, and I, I think we we owe a great uh, tilt of the hat to our foremothers, even though their names are principally biblical. I mean, there's three or four Marys, Mary McLeod, Bethune, Mary Church, Terrell, you know, um, Anna, Julia Cooper, all of these other names that are rather biblical from that era. But then we also have to thank our mothers who chose to invent our names by the, either choosing an ancestral name or choosing a key Swahili name or something that might have an African kind of connection to it. Even my own name, which was my maternal grandmother's name, is African, an actual Africanized Arabic name. So Aisatu is the Islamicized version of Aisha, the daughter of Muhammad, but the abbreviation in the West Africa Muslim community is Ida. So when we went to the Gambia, I kept hearing someone say, Ida, Ida. I'm like, who they call, why are they calling my name? So once again, these ways in which we choose to name ourselves are yeah. really amazing. And that's a sense of identity. Other groups do it. And, and so um, even the Asians have now switched it up. So they maintain an ethnic name, but then they have a name that's pronounceable in Western language to like Bobby Jindal. I like that. that. Yeah, it's funny when you do that. It's funny. <laughs> it, it's really hilarious. <laughs> I have a friend who's uh, Nigerian, and, it, and it, I mean, I don't know why. Well, he does it partly because he's Christianized, but he won't say he'll give he'll give his Christian name first, which to me is another issue. But yeah, I understand that. You know, you give your uh, Anglicized name so that people can understand you. But there's a number of Nigerians now that are on television, and they will give you the uh, a shortened version of their mono of their multisyllabic. <laughs> You can help me out here. Multi syllabic. Syllabic name, yes, name. thank you. Multi mm-hmm. syllabic mm-hmm. name. Which I which I can never get around to pronouncing. Now, Gambian names are much more simpler, thank goodness. But uh yeah, Keisha Lass Bottoms, I didn't mention she's a Florida A and M University graduate, not HBCU person. And then uh you mentioned about a Kiswahili name, you know, Ayana's uh name in Kiswahili is beautiful flower. And we're talking about Ayana Presley, the congressperson from Massachusetts. And I picked the great her out too. Of Massachusetts. I don't know what's great about it, but we'll go right ahead. <laughs> Is that where you're from? <laughs> I believe so. That's where they are. Okay. Yes, thank you. Well, you know, her district is only 25% black, and so these people still voted for Ayana. <laughs> yeah, and, and we also have a new interim black mayor in the city of Boston as well when um, the mayor, Marty Walsh, was up to, I believe, one of the agencies that, that left a void in city politics. So there's actually, for the first time, a black woman who's a native Bostonian serving as the interim mayor of Boston. So once again, in all these spaces where black women, black people, 
women were never thought to be able to occupy by just the fiat of that power structure that wants to keep that concentrated in the hands of a very small population, principally of white Anglo-Saxon men, has now burst open. And every space, be it athletics, politics, education, are coming into these spaces and owning it and dominating it with a sense of equity. And I think that's very impressive, and that's part of what I call Mammy's Revenge. Right, and you may, right. You, well, that's why we call it Mammy's Revenge now, because I've taken your word from you. But uh, other people take from you this thought that, that 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 the people who were in power before were white men. So is that why they're storming the walls of the Capitol now? <laughs> Very much so. There is a there's no, 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 no black men doing that, and there wasn't many white women well, doing that. Well, there were a couple that. of black Both men of, out there. There were a couple, a couple of black men out there, but it's believed to be that they might have been plants or paid to do this because it was not a visible amount. There was well, no it wasn't visible, and that's not what the and that's not what the police who testified was saying. He said it was mostly white men. <laughs> yes, Mr. Dunn, who was called the N word repeatedly. Um, but what that represented on January 6th is how this country was birthed in terms of this revolt and this arrogance, but also the sense that this is a global reality. Their numbers are shrinking. And so as the pendulum swings east with President Xi in China, he made a very fiery and very uh, pointed State of the Union address on the centennial of communism. And uh, then also demographically, the world is becoming increasingly browner and more female. So once again, (laughs) the numbers show the world is becoming more female and more brown. And while we have rebellions, I'm going to mention three more women real quickly. So we have Ilhan Omar who's also a congressperson from Minnesota, and her district is only 15% black and probably even less Muslim, and Ilhan is not Susie, and she won the election. And, of course, there was Kamala, and Kamala Harris, where the guy even made fun, and I, I was so insulted when he did this, some white congressman or senator or whatever, making, standing in front of a crowd, making fun of his inability to pronounce the name correctly, and he thought that was giving him gold chips for being stupid. Well, see, you see it as stupid. He's saying that he can't wrap his tongue around this oddity. So it's always going to make the object seem like it's the problem when your hands are too small to hold it. <laughs> see, that's going to <laughs> that's shift the That's a good way of putting that. Can you repeat now. that again? <laughs> yeah, so, so he's going to make fun of the object when, in fact, his hands are too small to hold it. So it makes her look, it so makes her look again, like the oddball. So once again, these slights, even with Stacey Abrams, some of the political cartoons were extraordinarily derogatory. She mm. did, didn't even blink because what she was able to form in Georgia was a transracial, transgendered, cross-cultural pact in which they're now saying that Georgia will become a minority-majority state. I don't even understand that language. That's clearly a westernized term. It means the brown, black, and yellow are getting ready to outpace the white. Not just in Georgia, but globally. And so for those persons who are on the margins and on the periphery, who have always known and believed themselves to be a superhuman in the same way of Adolf Hitler's sense of the perfect specimen, have lost control of this planet, now you see two of them trying to go to another planet. (laughs) <laughs> and Nikki Giovanni was just recently at a conference talking about this and saying the best persons to go into space would be a black woman. We understand hospitality. We tell the uh, tell the Martians come in and sit down. I'm cooking some greens. We'll play some bidwiz and I'll do your hair. Okay. We understand hospitality. So Nikki Giovanni had a very profound thing to say, and I thought it was just so beautiful that because of the treatment that black women have endured, and because of the grace that we have been given by divine fiat. We have within our capacity to be the most hospitable and 
hospitable and understanding person. Now, okay, mind well, you, half, that does have a double-edged sword, and it does cut the other way as well. That's another show. <laughs> two and a half minutes left. Let me see if this caller has a question. So, caller, if you have a question, press one so we can bring you in. And caller, the number here is 516-531-9540. Either press one now if you want to uh, express yourself or have a question. Okay. Well, Ida, they, they seem like they don't have a question. We're going to finish the last one and a half minutes by bringing up the last one, and that is uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. President Biden appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C., which puts her in line to become the first black woman Supreme Court justice. So I guess somebody's going to learn how to pronounce Katanji one day, hopefully. And even if they don't, they can call her Madam Justice. <laughs> you can wrap your hands around that. Okay. <laughs> Just like when we were children at the gumball machine, they had the big gumballs, you know, those um, jawbreakers. And uh-huh. sometimes my little five-year-old hands couldn't grab the jawbreakers, and so they'd spill to the floor. So I'd have to go to the other machine and get the gumballs, which were a little smaller. But I realized right. that the gumballs, I'd get more, but they wouldn't be as big as the other one, but I still got more. So you'll find a way to wrap your head around it or your hands. Eventually. 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 Or you'll find yourself trying to climb the gumball machine and claim and have someone else later on claim you were having a party at the gumball machine when you really were trying to break it. There you go. And that's what we saw <laughs> on January 6th. Yeah, that's all I saw. I just saw a bunch of people rebelling against what they don't want to see and what they don't like, what they think they're supposed to have. I mean, it was pathetic. It's but we'll see what... As much as it was pathetic, it's far more frightening because if they don't acknowledge and resolve this with some kind of document it's going to be mm-hmm. worse the second incarnation. And when they lose white lives with this next round, maybe that will cause the country to wake up because that's what they well, were coming for was white lives. Well, they weren't coming for black lives. <laughs> well, they did lose white lives. I think about five white people died. I know but it was if one it was lady. Pelosi or the other guy, Schumer, uh-huh. it has to be, and I'm not trying to be seditious, right. but it has to be a certain value of white life because even the woman who lost her son was campaigning in Congress to ask them to support this investigation. And they just blew her off like she wasn't even there. Okay. Well, anyway, that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening to Port of Harlem Talk Radio. And please visit portofharlem.net and like us on Facebook. Thanks, Ida. Have a good day. Thank you, Wayne. Take care, everyone. Goodbye.